Sunday, I was sharing a message in regard to um, Paul's instructions to Timothy about the charge that he <clears throat> has given us, and, and I, I wanted to just share a second part to that um, this morning. As we, as we consider this whole topic um, in regard to God's will for us as a church, as a people in the world that we're living in, and in First Timothy chapter 1, in that, in that passage there, in verse 5, just as a bit of a reminder, he says, the aim of our charge is love. Our, our direction, our focus, everything in life, it's love, he says. He says, but it's the kind of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience in a sincere faith. And he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so, so last Sunday we already discussed, to some degree, the difference in the world's definition of love versus love defined biblically according to the Word of God. And so, as we consider that thought, what does biblical love look like according to the Word of God? And as we're understanding this passage here, like Paul mentions these three things. He, he talks about love that comes from a pure heart. And he talks about love that comes from a sincere heart and from a good conscience. And so as we consider that definition, it reminds us that the world's definition of, of affirming and coming alongside and, and not getting in the way of somebody um, and, and that that is true love we understand that biblically, that telling truth is really love. Looking at somebody and recognizing that maybe they're on the wrong road, or maybe they've made a bad turn, and it's telling truth. It's, it's saving lives. Loving someone enough to say, say, dear brother, dear sister, dear, dear person in my life, I can't I just sit idly by while you're going in the direction that you're going in. I love you. I care about you. I, I'd love to be able to show you that God has a better plan for you. This, this is what the Bible talks about as love. And this is what Jesus practiced in his life. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with um, Grace Life Church in California. Pastor John MacArthur. I've often been really blessed by his ministry. And, and those of you who know him, no, here's a guy in his mid-80s, unapologetically protecting the Word of God in, in its purity. And if you know anything about him, you know that he doesn't really, it doesn't bother him who he offends. He'll unapologetically preach the truth of the Word of God. And along the way, many people are offended. Along the way, many people are like, you must be talking about me. And, and when you hear the heart of his gospel, the, the gospel that he's preaching, you know that's not his intent at all. His desire is to cause Christians and non-Christians to examine themselves and say, where am I maybe off the path? Where have I veered away from God's roadmap for me? See, when we, when we fear man rather than God, we do what Paul says about these men. He says they, they didn't have this love that issued from a pure heart. 
or a good conscience or um, a sincere faith. So he says, as a result of them having a fake kind of love, they swerved away. And he says they became shipwrecked in their faith. And so one of the the things that I, I feel myself over and over again, and I feel the Spirit of God calling me back to, and I, I believe even as a church, as a, as a lighthouse here in our community and, and, and in our world, we ought to go, constantly go back to the manual, back to the Word of God as our roadmap to keep us from sinking. So as, as we consider this thought, one of the, the key things that keeps coming to my mind is, do we fear God or do we fear man? Are we willing to, to speak the truth and expose sin, even if it may cause people to label us and call us all kinds of names or, or um, ridicule us in our stand, in our faith? And so in this chapter here, um, I, I have this thought that I'd, I'd like to share this morning, and it's this thought, how do we fulfill our duty of love to humanity? You know, we're, we're not just randomly placed upon the earth to live our own life. You know, that, the, the great commission in Matthew 28 is given to every one of us. So, so how do we live our life and demonstrate love to huma- humanity without coming across maybe as being judgmental or, or um, legalistic? How do we do this? And... I, I go back to this charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And I think there, there's something in here for us to consider. In verse 18 of that chapter, 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul, Paul go, says this to him. He says, Timothy, um, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, he says, I have a desire for you that by them, by the things, the charge that I've given you, that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. And then he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So, as we consider that thought, I'd, I'd like us to just ask ourselves, what does it mean when Paul says to Timothy, I have an instruction for you to wage the good warfare? And one of the, the thoughts that God has been bringing to my mind as I've been meditating on this is, is that we're, we're often, um, it almost sometimes seems like we're under this, this apathetic curse where we, we give in to apathy or complacency. And let me try to explain this. In, in a marriage relationship, when you as a husband and a wife, you make a covenant vow to each other, that you're going to stay together through sickness and health, you know, through good and bad, um, you know, whether you're, you're rich or whether you're poor, you, you make a vow to each other that I'm going to stay committed to you till death parts us. And so we, we stand before witnesses as a, as a married couple and we're, we commit this, this vow to each other. And then life happens, right? And all the, all the messy things that come our way, all the decisions, all the, the not-so-pretty stuff, 
laugh about each other. And, and I find that in our world today, there's, there's, there's a movement among us to not fight. And, and Paul says to Timothy, I want you to wage the good, good warfare. What, what he's really saying is, is fight the good fight. And, and it's not just in marriages, but it's in, in our parenting. Like, like how it seems like so often we, as, as moms and dads, and I count myself in that sometimes, I, I have this tendency sometimes too when I, I see my son or my daughter doing something that I'm not pleased with, and I, I sense, you know, God may not be pleased with this either. But sometimes there's a, a desire in me to just, just say, oh, well, you know, they'll, they'll figure things out. And, and yet, Paul says here, no, you ought to wage the, 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 good, the good warfare. There's a battle. And we need people to be willing to say, no, I'm going to fight for my son. I'm going to fight for my daughter. I'm going to fight for my wife. I'm going to fight for my husband. I'm going to... I'm going to fight for my faith. And I'm, going to, and I'm going to open up the Word of God and I'm not going to give territory to the enemy. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is the issue that we're seeing sometimes is people are, are surrendering territory. And, and we've seen church after church after church, especially mainstream churches across the Western world that have said things like, well, you know, we, we obviously, we, we can't, defend ourselves so we'll just give and we'll just compromise a little bit here a little bit there a little bit here and before you know it you have a church that does not resemble Jesus Christ the body of Christ and and Paul says to Timothy I'm giving you a charge to wage the good warfare there's a fight that you must consider you know recently I think some of you guys were watching hockey last night pretty sure but anyways, when, when you look at the NHL, for example, some of you guys have, have heard, maybe you don't watch hockey, but you've seen news reports. And you've seen one NHL player get up and say, I'm not willing to compromise my faith for what my organization and my team is pushing. Now, some of you have seen news articles like this. And you've been like, wow, here's a player who's willing to be ridiculed because he says his faith in Jesus Christ doesn't allow him to celebrate a sinful lifestyle. And you know what's incredible? This one man who stood up has all of a sudden others have stood up and said, you know, I'm not willing either to compromise. And, and as a result, you, you have the, the commissioner of the NHL say, we ought to respect people's individual decisions in their faith. And you're like, wow, what, what happened here? You know, all it takes sometimes is for us to stand up and say, we will not compromise. We're not going to give territory. And this is, this is what Paul says, hey, I've given you a mandate, Timothy. Wage the good warfare. And far too often we're throwing in the towel and we're surrendering territory. We're giving up and we're saying, well, it's too big. It's too impossible. And yet, we've, we've seen in recent weeks the possibility of these things. And so, I want to encourage you. Don't give territory back to the enemy. We have a calling to wage the good warfare. And in this particular instance, um, Paul even says, says, wage the good warfare. And then he says, holding the faith. 
Don't, don't allow people to encroach. You hold the faith and a good conscience. And, and, and all you have to do is look at the, the, the number of denominations around us across the Western world who, who haven't waged the good warfare, who haven't held the faith. And as a result, they, 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 look, they, they look upon the congregation, the spiritual leaders, and they, their conscience is all defiled. Because they know what the Word of God says, but they've given territory. And their conscience is defiled, and they followed the path of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who Paul says here, their faith became shipwrecked. And this is, this is what is happening. I want us to consider uh, a thought here this morning, and it's the area of grace. And I, I believe we always ought to balance scriptural truth with scriptural truth. When, when we think about grace, we're blessed by the fact that we're dependent upon the grace of, of, of Christ every day. We, we know that if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus in our life, none of us would be here. That we're saved by, by grace. That, that God's riches came and put Jesus Christ on the cross for us, and as a result, by believing in Him, we can have eternal life. So we're dependent on the grace of God to redeem us. But there's an issue. And I, I was recently reading um, a little bit of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life. Um, if you know anything about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, you know he was a German theologian who lived during the time of Adolf Hitler in Germany during the rule of the Third Reich. He opposed Hitler. He, he was waging this warfare. He actually he joined an organization and they had a desire to, to even um, assassinate Hitler. And it, but he was a pastor. He was a preacher in Germany during World War II. But he was, he, he was also um, maybe what you would label as a holiness preacher. He, he had a passion for the Word of God. And in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, he, he talks about this term called cheap grace. And this is what he says. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. I think that's a really interesting thought. And he was already seeing it in the early 1900s there. He says, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ. So he says, as, as we consider this whole area, especially as we consider this conscience that God has given us, yes, we, we love the grace of God. And yet, in our world today, there's a, a form of grace that has crept in that is an imitation it's, it's not the grace that the Bible talks about. It's a, it's a cheap grace. It's imported from China, made from plastic, okay? It's not real. You know, the, um, last, last Sunday I was talking about this, this sincere faith um, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in this definition, the, the word sincere, which came from the word sincera, and, and as we consider that definition last Sunday, what we were discovering was that, that 
that as, as the New Testament was written, um, the, the writer Paul was looking at this practice that was made in the marketplace where people would be selling a pot, but it may have been cracked and they filled it with wax. And you could only tell the difference if you would pick up the pot and you would hold it up to the sunlight. And I think that's a good thought. When we are thinking of sincere faith in the grace of God and what we are hearing all around us today, you know, you can tune into any YouTube message or sermon, um, any podcast, and you can hear all kinds of things about grace. But I think what we ought to do sometimes is when we're discerning some of these things, we ought to look at the fruit. You know, we're told in Scripture that we ought to examine these things to see if there's fruit here, and there's good fruit. And, and as we consider these cracked pots, we ought to hold them up to, to the Son, being Jesus Christ. And we ought to see how, how are, are the teachings and the thoughts and the fruit coming out of this ministry resembling Jesus Christ? Or is it just a crackpot? Is it a cheap imitation? Plastic from China or something? Because we're, we're living in a world like that. We, we must examine these things. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're, you're supposed to be bringing an appetite to people around you by your lifestyle. They're supposed to be becoming hungry for the Lord and thirsty for the things of the Lord. And that's why Jesus says, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In fact, he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So when, when we lose this sincerity, when we, when we stop waging this good warfare, and we, we have a wrecked conscience, our conscience is defiled, we start to go in this area of, of shipwreck. And in fact, we are, we're no different than these cracked pots, this imitation stuff from China. <clears throat> There's actually some good stuff from China. I'm sure there is. I, sh- I should maybe be careful with that. But as, as I consider um, this whole thought of grace, um, I, I'm not grieved today when I see Many churches closing their doors. I don't know about you. I, I'm not grieved because I, I recognize that many of these churches that are closing their doors, um, uh, attendance in these churches has dwindled. And, and it's because, in reality, most of us, we see something that's not real. We're, we're able to discover what's an imitation. There's reasons why we sometimes buy name brand items. Because we've recognized that they last longer and work better. There's you know, a lot of you guys who work in the construction trade. You, you bypass job mate, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure almost every single one of you guys in the construction trade, you're not, at, you're, you know, you're not in Walmart buying job mate tools. You're, you're, you, you realize that in the trade that you're in, a tool 
is, is, is great benefit to you and you want something that's going to work. In the same way in churches today, um, people have emptied a lot of the buildings across our land because they haven't found Jesus there. So I'm not grieved by those things. I don't think we ought to be grieved by those things. When, when we see imitation not lasting, we ought not to be grieved by those things. <clears throat> I'm kind of reminded of a story told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of animals, different animals. One day the gorilla died in the zoo. And to keep up the appearance of a full range of animals, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit and fill in for the dead animal. It was his first day on the job and the man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. As he tried to, to move convincingly in his pen, he got too close to the wall of the enclosure and he tripped and he fell into the lion exhibit. He began to scream, convinced his life was over, until the lion spoke to him, be quiet or you're going to get us both fired. This is the world that we're living in, you know, where, where there's fakery. This is, this is the cheap grace that I'm talking about. It's not sincere. It's not real. And we know that the zoo's not going to last. People want to see the real thing. Jesus talks about this. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. We ought to balance scripture with scripture. In Luke 14, 25, there were great, great crowds that were following Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he says this. This is a really interesting part of the scripture passage. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I want you to consider this. Jesus says, there's a cost to discipleship. It's not just this, this um, fakery, this cheap imitation stuff that we're seeing all over the place. No, Jesus said, consider the man who's going to build a massive construction project. And he says a tower. He says he doesn't, he doesn't just look at his finances and think, well, I'm going to have enough to build a foundation. No, he, he prepares. He thinks, you know, this is how much I'm going to need. I got an estimate here, an estimate here. Uh, I, I know exactly what I need. I know all the materials that I need. And I see the finish mark. So he builds accordingly. And he, he builds a smart, wise person. He builds in a way that he knows that he can get to the end and look at his project with satisfaction, knowing that it's been built right. Now, now, here's the, the illustration as it pertains to us as believers. You know, many people today would like to profess that they know Christ, but in reality, in their, their own life, the actions that are coming, the fruit that's coming out of their own life, 
um, is demonstrating to people watching them that something has shipwrecked. Something has fallen apart. And, and it's no wonder that often believers are mocked in our day today because they're, they're so wishy-washy and so compromising. You know, they're, they're, they're twisting and turning at every bend. And, and I, I go back to this thought. The, the, the world is in the place that is, our society is in the place that is today because the church didn't do its part. The, the, the church messed up. The church compromised. The, the church should have held the line. They should have waged the good warfare. They should have fought the good fight so that they could hold the ground and not mess up their conscience and so become fruitful in the kingdom, but they didn't. And as a result, they're, they're, they're like somebody who goes out to build a construction project, like Jesus says here, and, and they're halfway through and they're out of resources. They're halfway through and, and they're now going in a direction of such compromise that as the world looks at, at these people who label themselves as Christians, they can't see Christ. All they see is this cracked pot. And, and as, as they're holding up our life to that of Jesus Christ, they're saying, this, this isn't sincere. This isn't real. There's cracks all the way through it, and it's just filled with wax. It's just pretense. It's like you're dressed up like a lion or a gorilla in a zoo. Like this is not, this is not reality. And so Jesus' thought was, there's a cost to discipleship. And that means somebody who's, who's ready to, to take on a project and not just start it, but to carry it through to the finish line. So we come to, to Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. And, and as we think about this cheap grace versus biblical grace, we look at what Paul says in Romans 5.20. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says here here that when the law came in, when, when we started to discover that Jesus was our Savior, that Jesus was real, that Jesus came to give himself for us, he says, as, as we discover this, as we started to apply truth, sin increased. But he said, there's, there's a marvelous thing that happened. As sin increased, grace increased to meet the need of sin. Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So, so as, as, you, as you became born again, you started to recognize that temptation didn't fade away, right? That as you looked at the red button, it says, do not touch the red button. You still had a desire to touch the red button. But there's something marvelous that happened here. And so Paul says here, as that sin started to, that desire started to increase, something really amazing was happening on the side. Grace was rising up and giving you what? A power that you never had before. And now instead of desiring to, to, to press the red button, you're like, you know, here's one who died on the cross for my sins. Here's one who gave himself for me. 
I choose him. I love him. He's made a way of escape for me. I don't need to give in to temptation anymore. So as sin increased, he says, grace came up to meet the need that we had in our life. And so in Romans 6, 1, he makes this statement. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that, that the grace meter would, raise, would rise even higher? He says, no, by no means. He says, how, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says here, because the, the grace meter has risen, we're not going to see how close we can get to the edge of the cliff before we fall over. You know, Cheap grace tells you that. Cheap grace tells you that, you know, just get to the edge of the cliff. And if actually if you fall over, grace will just restore you. Biblical grace says, no. I've been there. I've done that. I don't want to play with that. I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to enjoy it. I don't want to make it a part of my lifestyle. I want to get away from it. So, so as grace rises in your life, you're like, no, I, I don't want to go there anymore. I, I have a desire to please Christ in my life. I choose him and not sin. Spurgeon says something interesting about this. He says, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? He says, surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. He says, sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? And so th this is the thought that we ought to look at. Am I being friendly towards sin or sinful things or, or things that look like sin? Because in 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says that we have been made new. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. So we ought not to, to play at the edge of the cliff thinking grace is going to protect me and keep me from falling over. In fact, grace ought to make us mature in our faith. It ought to bring us to a, a place where we we're looking at, at sin and everything it represents and the darkness of it and the, the lifestyle of it. And we ought to come to this conclusion, you know, I don't even want to get close to that. I don't want my clothes to even smell like that. I don't want to that, the whole smell of that disgusts me. You know, just the other day I was talking with an, an ex-smoker. And, and he said there was a, a, um, a time in his life where he became free from cigarettes. But he said when he would be in the presence of somebody that was smoking, he still kind of enjoyed the smell. But he said all of a sudden there came a time in his life where... The smell of this smoke was disgusting to him. In fact, if anybody was near him that was smoking, it bothered him so much he couldn't be in that presence there anymore. You know, it, it reminded me of this thought that when grace impacts us, we don't think about sin and, and how much we would like to be a part of that, how much we'd like to enjoy it. We would like to remove ourselves 
from it. And so I want to just turn a little corner in here as we, as we wrap up for today. I want to talk about this area, some of some areas in the church here. Um, a little bit about confrontation. You know, Paul tells us that we ought to be the ones judging each other in the church here. And so I want us to think about this thought. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And, and this thought that true love exposes sin, it confronts it, it abandons it, and it refuses to compromise with it or anything that looks like it. Ephesians 5.11, you have this verse in your bulletin there, says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather, or instead, expose them. Don't think about how much you can immerse yourself in these things. Rather, expose them. He says it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. In verse 13 he says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In verse 15 he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, he says. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit of God. And so he says, consider carefully your walk. Your day-to-day action. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Look carefully how you walk. And in verse 12, it's, it's shameful even to speak of the things that people are doing in the darkness. But when anything is exposed to the light, he says, it becomes visible. So as we consider those things, in, in the church, we also ought to recognize that if we want to walk with true love, we don't want to consort with the assassin. We don't want to play with things that may be friendly towards sinful lifestyles. Not only that, Romans chapter 14 tells us we even ought to consider that maybe our actions will cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. So what are we doing as we think about how we ought to walk in our Christian journey in order that our brother or sister who is new in the faith would not stumble? In their faith. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, it says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In verse 19, he says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us, let us be involved in the things that mutually build us up. As brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want us to consider this thought. He, he says here. Go back to verse. Um, Ephesians 5.11. He says. Take no part. In the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead expose them. As, as you think about that. Um, let, let's just bring it closer to home. Instead of living a compromised lifestyle. Take, for example, your, your marriage relationship. You know, some of you may have 
in your home, you might have a father or a husband who is dishonoring God in everything they do. Maybe, maybe he's even abusing you as a wife. Maybe he's abusing the children. Maybe even sexually abusing them. Well, according to this scripture passage, you ought not to just pretend that nothing's going on. You ought to expose. You ought to bring it into the light where victory can happen. When we go along with somebody's sin in their life and their sinful lifestyle, we become complicit. We become a part of it. So as a loving wife, you look at your husband and you're like, you know, I have to expose what you're doing. Because you are creating a toxic environment in my home, in my children. And it may affect them even to the next generation. It may, it may bother their children. Because I'm not willing to do anything about it. And so we, we, we look at some of these things and we, we need to recognize there may be a time for, for me to speak up. There may be a time for me to, to wage the good warfare. And not allow the enemy to continue to plunder and to take territory in my home. So, yeah, what does true love do? True love exposes darkness. In, in the same way, you know, it's, it's the same way for, for us as, as men as we consider what our wives are doing. There, there may be something going on and we're just letting it slide instead of exposing it to the light. And, and as we think about some of these things, we, we ought to keep in mind that there's victory in the light and that as we want to be this sincere person, practicing sincere love and sincere faith, that sometimes things have to hurt for a while before they get better. And so instead of just, just demonstrating to a world who's looking for Jesus that everything is fine in our home, Maybe we need to open it up and say, hey, we know, you know what? Things are not working right here. We need Jesus to come in and be involved. There's things going on that ought not to happen here. We need help. You know, I, I, it seems rare in our day anymore that someone says, hey, things are, are not going good. In fact, almost every time you ask somebody, they say, oh, yeah, things are, yeah, good. Things are going good. And, and in fact, there's, there's toxicity and death happening. We ought to consider those things. <clears throat> something else, as we talk about exposing darkness, something that I've noticed recently, and I just want to briefly bring up a few of these things as we wrap up, is, is the area of, of our, our love affair with alcohol. And some of you are like, really? I mean, Scripture doesn't condemn alcohol, does it? And I'm not here today to, to try to tell you that the Word of God explicitly tells you that thou shalt not drink a beer or wine or alcohol. But what I, what I want to ask you today, as you consider this, why, why would I try to look at how close I can get to the edge? Why would I try to do that? Why would I mess around with something that causes so much devastation? Why would I bring it into my home? Why would I invite friends to gather around my table or around my bonfire 
and, and drink something that has caused the ruin of so many. And I dare say, if I ask you to raise your hand today, if you have been impacted by somebody who has, who has taken alcohol and used it in excess and has caused devastation in your family, I wonder if not every hand would raise in here. And you would say, you know, I had this brother that died as a result of a car accident. I had this uncle. I had this person that, that lost his license for the rest of their life because they made this decision. I, have, I, I know this couple who's apart because he couldn't stop drinking. I can almost guarantee you that every single one of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, that's true. I, I look at my family and my extended family, and I know that that's the case. And, and so here's my thought. Why would we consort with the assassin? Why would we say, oh, no, but I got self-control. I'm not going to play with those things. I'm, I, know, I know my limit, and I'm not going to go there. Why would we mess around with things? these things? Ought not the grace of God, should it not cause us to say, oh, wait a minute. This has caused so much destruction and damage. What if, what if my family member all of a sudden doesn't know the line? Just recently, a, a, a man um, said, uh, and he was talking to another brother that I know, and he said, well, you know what we do? We gather around the bonfire and we study the Word of God while we have our beer. And it, 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 I couldn't even comprehend it. It doesn't even make sense to me. And they're, they're studying the Word of God um, as, as they're drinking together. And I, I, you know, some of you are going to be like, well, that's no big deal. The grace of God covers that. Yeah, will it cover it when somebody loses control? The grace might cover it, but the consequences won't. The consequences will be there. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm so saddened, brothers and sisters. I, we, you know, we spend nine weeks here with our young couples, and we take them through a pre-marriage course, and then all of a sudden we hear that here's a, a young husband who's taken his wife to a party. And, and all of a sudden, there's a little bit too much drink that happens. And she's making out with another man. You, you look at those things and you're like, young man, can't you understand? Why are you playing with it? You know better. And, and, and here we are over and over again. We, we have older, more genuine Christians saying, oh, you know, that's not a problem. Alcohol, we, 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 you know, we have beer and Bible study. And here's a young man who doesn't know his limits. And his faith is shipwrecked. It's destroyed because of your liberty. And we, we ought to ask ourselves, why, why is this so important to me that I feel like I need to play around with it? What, you know, is there, does it mean so much to you that you can't let it go? You know, there's, there's so many of these things. It's not just alcohol. You want to talk about stumbling block? We could talk about modesty in the church. And I, and I know I'm, I could be labeled all kinds of things. And I'm not here to, to tell you today 
as a, as a God-fearing woman, how short your skirt ought to be or how long your skirt ought to be. I'm not here to give you a measurement when it comes to those things. But there's a Spirit of God that ought to be speaking in your life and communicating His truth to you and giving you a, a recognition that what am I advertising? How am I dressing? What do people look at when they see me? Here, here I'm professing to be like Jesus. And people may look at you and they may see somebody dressed up like a lion or like a gorilla. Somebody that may, may say all the right words, but in reality, it's not true. They're just a crackpot. And I want to encourage you ladies, as you consider this, Dress to draw people to your face, to your countenance, to your character and your personality, which are made in the image of God. Dress in such a way that people are drawn to, to who God made you to be and not to your body parts. You know, you might say, well, Scripture doesn't talk about this. Well, in Proverbs chapter 7, we, we read about this young man who had no sense. And it says that in the twilight, in the evening, in the night, in the darkness, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute. I want to ask you this. What does that mean? What does it mean to be dressed as a prostitute? Because we live in a world today where people say, you can dress however you want to. Don't let anybody tell you how to dress. What, what does it mean then to be dressed as a prostitute? What does it mean when Peter says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Not in the clothing. What does it mean when in 1 Corinthians he says, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty? which our more presentable parts do not require. There is a standard. There's a standard in the Word of God. There's a standard when it comes to alcohol. There's a standard when it comes to modesty. And we live in a world where people are looking at people who label themselves as Christians and as they are holding up the pot to the sun, I just want to ask you, are they seeing the cracks? Are they seeing something that's fake? Or as you look upon your own heart and your own life, are you willing to examine and put your lifestyle up against the Son of Jesus Christ? Or the, the, the Son being Jesus Christ? Are you willing to put your lifestyle against that? In what you permit and allow? Knowing that you're called to wage the good warfare, knowing that you're called to a sincere faith, knowing that you're called to hold the ground in a good conscience, which today many have shipwrecked. You see, we have a calling to be a lighthouse. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to sit here and preach a message 
about alcohol or modesty, but maybe I do. But my intent here this morning is to rather express that, that true love exposes darkness. True love exposes darkness. It doesn't just allow it to fester. It doesn't allow the environment to just continue to grow the way it does. If you want to become more like Jesus, and you want your home to resemble Jesus, you need to bring light into your home and expose these kinds of things. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So don't play with it. Don't see how close you can get to the edge of the cliff. May God grant every single one of us here the grace to live with a pure heart in a a good conscience, in a sincere faith, that we may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience so that our faith does not become shipwrecked or that of our brother and sister in the Lord. You know, when I, I look upon you as a congregation, I, I'm filled with a great love for you. And I hope that the words that I'm speaking to you today, um, you realize that that is my desire and the intention of my heart. I'm, I'm not here to try to point anybody out or single any person out. But I hope that this message will make a difference in your life as you consider what others see in you. May God give you grace to, to live for him and, and serve him in every single way that you live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come before you, and Lord, we know that some of these things are weighty topics. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would pour your grace upon each person here. Father, we, we don't want to turn towards anything legalistic or or um, that's unbiblical, Father. Our desire is to, to cause us to grow in our faith, to grow in grace, Lord, to become more like Jesus, to, to understand that sin may beckon, but our love for Jesus beckons us to a much greater degree. Father, may, may Christ draw us, Lord, not the opinions of mankind, not the fashions and directions of the world, Lord. May May the love of Jesus beckon us ever closer to him, Lord. Father, that, that sin and, and all the, the lifestyles that come with it, Lord, would fade away. And Lord, may we be attracted by a love for you. Lord, I just want to pray for each person here. Lord, they're, they're beautiful in your sight, Lord. They're, each person here today is listening, Lord, where you're made in the image of God. Father, I just pray that the image of God would be represented well with sincere faith and a pure heart and a good conscience, Lord. Father, may we grow, may we be challenged, may we just become more like you. In Jesus' name.